Look at verse, uh, actually start in verse, chapter 9, and we're going to answer the question this morning of what must I do to be saved? It comes out of this passage, and uh, it's, it's a, a question that's pretty arresting. Um, and I would imagine in this room, there's quite a few of us would probably agree on what that, that is, but there are some of us that, you know, you may fall out differently. Um, how would you answer that, just yourself? What must a person do to be saved? Um, and is your answer the same as the Bible's? Uh, so we've been going through the book of Romans, kind of talking about this, and, and actually today's passage is kind of the finale um, of Paul's conversation of, and really God's conversation of what must I do to be saved. And uh, we're going to look over the next few verses at, at a word. It's going to happen over and over again. It's, it's this word righteousness. It occurs eight times in a packed section here. Now, it was a big deal earlier in Romans, and here is the finale. Like, this is it. This is where all the fireworks go off. He uses it over and over again, and he does a contrast between two types of righteousness. And, and we're going to see this play out. There's three contrasts over these next few verses about two types. And uh, we'll pick it up in Romans 9. We, we, we talked about this several weeks ago, but it, it goes with the flow of thought here into Romans 10. And Paul says, what shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Jews or Israel pursued a law of righteousness have not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay on Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes men fall, and the one who trusts in him, being Jesus, will never be put to shame. And Paul quotes that last little section there and inserts or the assumed name in there is, is Christ. He pulls that in and as a fulfilled prophecy. So the, the first contrast that we see here in Romans 9, these last three verses of chapter 9, is a contrast between two types of righteousness. One is by faith, and the other one is called a law of righteousness. And what he's, he's saying here, just to, to, it's just simple. It's not, you know, crazy rocket science. Righteousness, this, this one by faith, it, it's, it's an act, you know, to trust. It's uh, trust that faith will bring the righteousness or trust that God will bring righteousness. On the other side is this law of righteousness. And, and the way that this law of righteousness is, is it's, it puts people to shame that, that's the end result of it. You trust in your own works. And, and what's interesting is you read this, or as, at least as I have read it, I don't know about how it makes you feel or how you perceive it, but when he starts to contrast these two types of righteousness and he says this law of righteousness, it, it starts to make me, or it has over the years going, well, it feels like this law of righteousness is bad, like the law is bad. And, and is that what Paul is really saying, like the law is bad, or how does this work? Because one is the one you want, and one is obviously the one you don't want. 
And so Paul begins to explain this a little bit more here over these next few verses. In chapter 10, he then begins this whole other contrast, and he sets it up with this, this, this kind of this introduction. He says, brothers, my heart's desire uh, is, and, and my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God. We see right here, Paul, he said it earlier, but this is just black and white. He says it so clearly. He loves the Israelites. They're his people. But he makes it very clear, they are not saved. Now that's an offensive statement. And people don't like to hear that. We're uncomfortable saying that. If you went up to somebody and just said, you're not saved, you're not saved, the reaction would not be well received, I would imagine, with strangers, right? I mean, it rubs people wrong. It's, it's offensive. And the majority of the Jews, there were Jews that were coming to faith in Christ, but the majority of the Jews were not. They'd actually stoned Paul, left him for dead for saying this. They chased him out of their city and then out of another city and then they actually caught up to him in a different city and chased him out of that city and they, they did that multiple times. I mean, this, this was something they, they resisted and hated. And, and when Paul says, look, I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, for God, yeah, he's got the scars to prove it. He knows their zeal for God. And this is at the end of his ministry and he's still... He hasn't backed away from it, even given all the things that have happened to him. And you can read over in Acts about all those things. And he's still saying this. They are not saved. And he goes on to explain why. In verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What he says here, the contrast again, is there is a certain type of righteousness. Here he calls it a righteousness of their own. It's a righteousness that is definitely not from God, and it's the belief that a person can produce the righteousness needed to save oneself and to keep oneself saved. Because it's not just a one-time deal. You, you've got to keep producing that same righteousness the rest of your life. That's the righteousness of their own. Now, there's the positive side. This is the flip side of the contrast. And, and he says it three different ways. He, he talks about a righteousness from God, God's righteousness, and a righteousness for those who believe. And don't miss the premise as he, he says this. There's a direction this goes. There's a righteousness that comes to people from God. It's, it's called God's righteousness, and it comes for those who believe. Over and over again, from God, from belief, or by belief. And the premise is God gives his righteousness. And then he goes on to say something very curious. He says, Christ is the end of the law that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Like, what does that mean? What do you mean he's the end of the law? 
Did he get rid of the law? What happened to the law? Help me understand that, because that, that brings up a whole other question. I mean, I thought the Ten Commandments, are they over? Are they still going? Is that, where, where is the moral law of God? And, and the, the Jews had this incredible zeal. They were famous for their zeal for God. And there were even those within the nation that took everything literally, so literally they would tie scriptures and these little tiny things and tie them around their head and they would wear it and, and they would have all of these different things that demonstrated they were zealous for God and, and they would be part of, you had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, and, and they were so consumed with making sure that they protected the law and kept the law. And, and the problem is the law never talked through every single nuance, so they would write extra laws to cover themselves and make sure that they had touched every different thing and what about this and what about that and they were consumed with the law, the law, the law, the law and Jesus comes along and he starts to talk about the kingdom of God which they're part of the kingdom of God and in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 is a famous sermon that Jesus gave where he says, hey look if, if you want to know what my kingdom is about, this is what it's about and he says this at one time in there, he says don't think that I've come to abolish the law I mean, he's not here to destroy the law. That, that is not why Christ is here, to get rid of the law. I'm not come to destroy the prophets either. He says, I tell you that I've come to fulfill them. Unless your righteousness, this is, what's, this is what like is impossible, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, how in the world is that possible? You ever met someone who's just like so perfect and so righteous and then Jesus says, yeah, you think they're good. You got to be even better than them. I'm like, that's impossible. And Jesus is like, exactly. It is. Another time a guy came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, we'll keep the commands. And the guy's like, I have. Like, I'm zealous for God. You could just tell this guy was all about God and, and keeping the law. And Jesus said, well, then go sell all that you have and then come follow me. And the guy was wealthy and he walked away. And, and Jesus said, yeah, it's really hard for the rich to get in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, their reaction was, if that guy can't get in, who is getting in? And it's a sheer impossibility. How is it that this person who, who's like good, perfect, God's blessings on him, and they can't even get in? See, Jesus came, and he not only reaffirmed the law, but he actually revealed that the law is far more demanding than what anybody realized. See, Jesus said, oh yeah, you guys get it. Yeah, okay, don't divorce or don't, you know, don't lust. And so, yeah, you keep it to this whole adultery thing. He says, no, I'll tell you the truth. If you even have a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. What? And, and oh yeah, you guys keep bragging. I haven't killed anybody. Ha anybody ever said I, in this room, anybody say, well, I haven't done the biggies. And Jesus says, I don't care. Have you even hated someone in here? You've broken the biggie. I mean, how many times do we hear that in, our, in, in and out of our conversations throughout a year from people who say, well, I keep the biggies. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Jesus came and he showed us it's impossible because it goes all the way to the heart. And then everybody would say, 
collectively. That's impossible to keep. And that's Jesus' point. It is. It's absolutely impossible. He revealed that the law was beyond keeping for us. Too high. And he was the only person who kept it all the way to the end. Everything. He's the end of the law. He is the living word. He kept the whole entire thing in spirit and in truth. The whole thing. His righteousness is complete, and that's Paul's point. Our righteousness will have an end, and if it's just our righteousness, it ends in judgment and death. But Christ's righteousness, if you get his, you get it forever. And he took the death, and he took the punishment. You'll find him at the end of the law, giving grace and mercy. So he says, that's why, that's why he says, so there's righteousness for everyone believes. And he goes on and he quotes Moses here. So here's, here begins the third and final contrast. He says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does those things will live by them. And so he starts to quote Moses in several different passages, and he, he pulls Moses into this thing. And he, he, he gives this, uh, this famous quote. He says, those who live this way, right, the righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by him. Let me give you the full context of that. It's Leviticus chapter 18, and it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rule. If a person does them, he shall live by them. So on, on the flip side, why is this insufficient? Paul's not saying the law is bad. Hear me on that. The law is not bad. He's simply saying, by definition, any righteousness based on the law only comes as one does the law. So if you're going to claim the law and say, I'm a good person, well, now you've just said my standard is righteousness. It's a law. And now you've got to be hung up on, are you doing all that the law says? It won't go well for us. And that's the, the negative side of if you want to keep the law, which is good. It'll just condemn us. But on the flip side, and this is what he immediately goes to, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart. So time out right there. Time out right there. Um, this is a famous line. It's the only time it ever happens in the Bible. He's quoting Moses again. And you see what he's doing, because he's writing to Jews, right? He's also writing to Gentiles, because Gentiles are getting all snobby and snooty and thinking they're all that in a bag of chips and starting to lord it over the Jews. And the Jews are over here like all snotty and all that because they think they've had all these privileges. And so he's trying to write and balance this whole thing. But in writing to the Jews, he's got to pull in Moses. He's got to pull in the big guns, right? These are the guys they're going to cite. So he goes to a passage that's a famous passage. It's the final speech of Moses before Israel goes into the promised land. Now, 
Remember, Israel tried to go into the promised land once. That didn't go so well. They came back. The spies were like, ah, people are scary. Run. And so they said, no, we don't want to go. We'd rather go back to Egypt and slavery. And God's like, ah. So 40 years of, of wandering in the desert, that generation dies. Now Moses it's on the eve, not like literally the night before, but it's the eve before they go into the promised land. It's this famous speech he gives. And listen to what all comes with this quote. Do not say in your heart, right? He's saying this. This is God who's talking to Israel. And look what God says in the full context of this quote. So it starts like this. God says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, meaning they're about ready to go to the promised land and all the people that are there. So do not say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness that God has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of, this nation, of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. You know, therefore, that the Lord, don't say it in your heart, don't think it, don't even go there. Do not think that the Lord is giving this a good land because you're righteous, right? No. He says, He's not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You are a stubborn people. So when Paul says, do not say in your heart, he's referring to this speech, this moment where God makes it clear, it isn't about your righteousness. Over and over and over again, he pulls that in because he quotes that, and they're going to go back in the synagogue and, and say, hey, what was that What was that quote? What was that? And it's like, Oh, yeah, that was all that. that. Oh, God actually said that a long time ago. Oh, oh, we, we really weren't that righteous back then, even with Moses. He says, do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ Jesus down, or who will descend in the deep, that is to bring Christ Jesus up from the dead. So he interprets that, but that's actually still a quote from the back end of this speech. And what was happening was people, would, people were thinking, man, to, to, get, to get this place where, you know, you're, you're saved, to be saved, you're going to have to be some kind of super spiritual person. Anybody ever thought that in this room? Oh, I can't do this. I, I can't be a Christian. I can't be saved. I'm not spiritual like them. I'm not super spiritual. I, I haven't had that. Anytime you hear a story, anyone ever hear a story up here and go, wow, I wish I had a story like that. I'm not that. I must not be. Moses, God said it through Moses. You don't have to have some crazy supernatural spiritual experience where you go up into heaven you can bring jesus down, bring god down now it's paul saying that's jesus or go down into the depths and you know it's awful and, and you experience whatever that's awful down there and you bring jesus out with with you out of that he's like you don't need that you don't need any of that what must i do to be saved he makes it real simple 
The word is near you. He's quoting again Moses. This is God. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. What must I do to be saved? It's really easy. You got to have a mouth and you got to have a heart. Do you have a mouth? Pretty much last time I checked, every person on this planet has a mouth. Do you have a heart? Not physical heart, yes, you'll need that too. Heart in here. You have that? It's all you need. Like, that's it. You don't need anything else. I mean, it sounds really like folksy, like country, almost like redneck. All you need is just a mouth and a heart. What's your problem? Get her done. Right? It really is that simple. That, that's all it takes. And I think sometimes we go, oh, no, 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 I don't have, I've never been, and I've never gone, and I, uh, and Jesus is like, dude, I gave you a mouth, and I gave you a heart. That's all you need. It's what you do with those. And, and there's a lot of people go, no, it's too easy. Even Christians say, this is just too easy. And it's like, you can't unsay this. You can't unsay it. In fact, God said it twice. He said it to the Israelites, and he's saying it to the church. You can't, you, you just, ugh, it's easy. You just need a mouth, and you need a heart. That's it. And he says, this is what you do with your mouth. Confess that Jesus is Lord. For with our mouth, we confess. When we confess Jesus is Lord, he goes on to say, you're saved. So Jesus is Lord. Now that's hard because now you're talking about pride, right? Now you're talking about who wants to call the shots. Now you're talking about this, oh, oh no. You mean my plan isn't the biggest plan on the planet? Hey, the world doesn't revolve around me. And that's where it gets hard. Jesus is Lord. Who runs your calendar right now? Does Jesus run your calendar? Or do you? Or, or does culture run your calendar? Who's running it? Who's calling the shots? Jesus is Lord. Who's making the decisions? Just talk to someone who's trying to figure out their career and all this stuff, and someone this past week, it's so cool, in this church just said, have you ever, like, asked God? And he's like, no. I hadn't thought to do that. Jesus is Lord. Lord. He's Lord. He's God. So you say this, and it's a confession, so when you t use your mouth, when you use your mouth, typically something's coming out, Right? So confession is a verbal thing. Jesus is Lord. Have you said that out loud? In a room this size, I would imagine there are some of us that are scared to death to say that out loud. Jesus is Lord. Say it with me if you believe it. Jesus is Lord. Yeah. He's Lord. If you're not saying this out loud and, and there's fear and there's things like that, I get it, but there's something to saying this out loud. And until you say it out loud, there's something about this that you're held back. 
There's a confession piece to what must I do to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. It's just simply say this out loud. Jesus is Lord. And then the other part of this is, it's not just saying it, but the other part is the heart piece. Because you can say it. Even the demons can say it. They don't like it, but they don't believe it. Or they don't have it in their heart, right? And he says, it's with the heart that we believed and are justified, right? He says, we believe in our heart, God, what? Raised Jesus from the dead, and it's with our heart, as he says in verse 10, that we believe and are justified. So all of a sudden, these songs, we're singing about the resurrection, the communion, and everything. It is, it is about this belief in here that you can fake it if you want to, but you won't be saved then. It, it's what, what you believe in here. It, do you believe in the resurrection power and authority of Christ Jesus our Lord? Comes down to that, the resurrection. Simple guy. Keep it at the resurrection. Paul kept it at the resurrection. I think that's so interesting. He, he's, he's not talking about do you, do you believe something else? He's saying, what must I do to be saved if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and confess this with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Just keep it real simple. Andy Stanley talks about this and, and, and how far astray Christians are getting when, when you're talking to somebody else and trying to get somebody else in. He says, just keep it simple. Just go, look, I, I'm a really, real simple guy. If a guy predicts that he's going to die and then he's raised from the dead and then will be raised from the dead and then it happens to them and then history proves it, he says, I'm a simple guy. I'm probably going to just follow this guy. He's probably right about everything else. It's the resurrection. What do you believe about the resurrection? It's interesting. Paul keeps it at the resurrection. For there's no difference. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference, right, between Jew and Gentile. For all who call upon the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved everyone. It says, all who call on him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No shame. Anyone who trusts in him, Paul quoted at the, says this quote at the end of Romans 9, says it again. It's kind of a big deal. Shame is such a huge thing. I was just talking to someone recently who just overwhelmed by shame overwhelmed by it. I'm like, is that from God? Well, let's time out here. Time out, time out. You've confessed this. You dealt with this. Is that from God? Like, how long ago was it? Well, yeah, you know, I have confessed. And I go, well, what is, is that shame from God or not? Tell me. Let's, let's ask Jesus. And, and they're like, well, we don't have to ask. I know it's not from God. All right. Because anyone who trusts in him will never be put to that's not condemnation from God. That's, that's evil, toxic shame. I'm telling you right now, get rid of it. It's not yours. Drop it. There's no shame. And some of you are beating yourself up 
with condemnation. You're beating yourself up and just killing yourself with this toxic shame. And Christ is over here going, look, you've confessed I'm Lord. You, can, you believe in your heart I've been raised from the dead, right? I, I have resurrection power for you to justify you and give you my righteousness. That's not yours. It's not from me. So what we're going to do is uh, just spend a moment here. I invite Jake to come up. I don't, yeah, he's over here. We're going to sing this song again that, that uh, and no, blessed assurance. I keep wanting to say, and can it be? Blessed assurance. This is my story. Let me, let me just pray for a second. If you want to be saved, to use this word right from, from Paul, from God himself, from judgment, from shame. You've never done this before. It's a simple prayer right out of here. You just can simply say to him, Jesus, with your, with your mouth, Jesus, I do believe you're God, that you're the Lord of everyone and everything. I believe in my heart that you did die for me that you were raised from the dead for me and that you can give me your righteousness because I don't have any. He may even just say, hey, look, there's some things you've done and you start to think about them or see them and say, yeah, Lord, I know I've done a lot of bad things and I'm really sorry. Thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Don't ask him for it. Just thank him because he gives it. And some of you have been working so hard. You get the salvation piece, but you all of a sudden just, you went back to working so hard. And you're working so hard to be righteous. You're so busy and your hands are so filled up with your own righteousness that God can't give you his. And maybe today God just says, would you stop? Lay it down. My righteousness. Let, let me give you some of mine. And you just receive that today. If there's any shame... If there's any condemnation that is not from Christ, it stops right now. It just stops. Jesus, would you come and would you begin to just tell those who are overwhelmed by things in the past, start talking to them about how powerful your cross is. Start talking to him about how powerful your resurrection power is. How great you are. Your grace. Your mercy. Just, Lord, I release it right now on those who need it. Release your grace. Release your mercy. Just sing this song.